and welcome back to another edition of the Going for Two podcast. No, those are not the dulcet tones of Matt Brown you're hearing welcoming you in this week. I'm your co-host, Brian Fisher, and excited to kind of take over the driver's seat completely this week as, let's face it, Matt has somehow picked the worst time in history for somebody connected to college athletics to take a vacation, but uh, he, he is enjoying some well-earned outdoors time with the family in the great state of Utah, maybe even getting a little bit of sun as he emerges from that basement office of his up in Chicago, but the news does not stop. And we frankly have had a ton of it this week. We've mentioned a, a few times on this podcast, we expected a ruling from the Supreme Court in the NCAA versus Alston case. And we got it on Monday, a nine nothing decision from the Supreme Court. It, it really a landmark uh, court case in, in many respects. Now, what does that, all that mean for you, dear listener? Well, it means that uh, because I am in total control of this year podcast, I decided to mix things up just a little bit and, and kind of go double or nothing, given all of the news that has been going on in this in, in this enterprise. And so I'm excited to uh, drop two episodes this week. The first part, the one you're listening to right now, that's going to be with Washington professor Dr. Jennifer Hoffman in just a bit. We're going to have her on break down this Alston case, what the fallout is going to be, uh, what this nine nothing decision really kind of means in the grand scheme of things, and and how college athletics leaders, you know, can, can react to this case and ultimately what athletes themselves are, are going to be able to end up doing as a result of this uh, landmark Supreme Court ruling. Then we're going to drop part two at a regular time on Wednesday. Going to have on Darren Heitner, a sports lawyer, a professor at the University of Florida, and, and somebody who can not only help us continue the discussion on this Alston case, but also to kind of take a look and, and dive deep into name, image, and likeness. You know, Darren had, had, had a big role in helping shape that Florida NIL law that goes into effect next week and has given a, a huge hard deadline for the NCAA to deal with this subject. And so it's going to be great to catch up with Darren. If you know the ins and outs of NIL better than he does. And if you would like even more insight into the world of college athletics, why stop at this here podcast? If you are a fan, an athletic director, or, or maybe even just somebody interested in, in going beyond the wins and losses on the field, there's never been a better time to sign up for the companion to this podcast, the Extra Points newsletter. My good buddy Matt has some terrific insight into really everything that has been happening across the country. He can deliver you four newsletters a week on everything that is shaping college athletics from the Power Five all the way down to the NAIA. If you have not already signed up for a subscription extrapointsmb.com go ahead and sign up use the promo code podcast you get 20 percent off a subscription insight you truly cannot get anywhere else on a variety of subjects that are impacting everything that you see on the field fantastic time to sign up for the newsletter and uh, speaking of some great insight i'm really happy to be joined by our guest today dr jennifer hoffman as i mentioned a professor at the university of washington and the center for leadership in athletics Dr. Hoffman, I just want to kind of take a step back a little bit. This case has been working its way through the courts for, for years now. I mean, I remember being told about it way back in, in 2014, covering the O'Bannon trial and how impactful this could be. Uh, I'm curious, after being able to read the, the Alston decision from the Supreme Court, what were kind of just your, your general takeaways from uh, what, what the court decided today? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, this is a big day. This is a big day for college athletes. This is a big day for anyone who thinks deeply and critically about college sports. And it's a big day for those that just want to go to a football game on a Saturday afternoon. So it seems like the case being decided nine nothing. That was a big eye opener for I think a lot of folks that maybe are not uh, not following this super closely or, or didn't hear the oral arguments. Did it, did it seem eye opening to, to see that nine zero decision uh, come out on Monday? 
Yeah, I think that's the most striking thing is that, you know, we think in terms of sports, you know, we think in terms of a score. Um, and in our political times, we think of division, you know, typically along political lines or, or, or along the lines of, of the way our justices may or may not be ruling. Um, but to see that 9-0 and is really, really striking. And I think, again, for anyone who's following college sports, they're going to see that as um, just a really big win for college athletes. Once we get into the details a little, you know, you start to pull it back. There's there's a lot there, um, but nine to get nine justices to agree, um, you know, on particularly any any topic is is really quite striking. At, at the same time, uh, that you do hear that nine zero, it does seem like a, a lopsided court case. But you know, in this case, it, it was at least fairly narrow in terms of its some of the specifics regarding the case. Um, when you look at the, the NCA and, and how it's going to be affected by this, what do you kind of take away from the decision itself? Well, I think the decision itself is really clear in that the NCAA can no longer restrict those benefits that are tethered to education. And so we're talking about things like postgraduate scholarships or extra money that um, an athlete might receive for an academic award, same that you might receive for an athletic award. Um, and so for, for those that are following the case closely, you'll see that college athletes will be able to be compensated in yet another way um, but they won't be able to receive compensation for their labor per se under amateurism. And, and although the ruling is very narrow to allow for more educational benefits and, and offering a new stream of funding, the court was also clear that um, amateurism is undecided and, and really left a roadmap for how to start thinking about um, making those decisions around what do we do around this, this issue of amateurism and what do we do around pay for play. It, it does see that seem like that amateurism, you know, impact was was really a largely kind of attributed to Justice Kavanaugh's uh, consenting opinion as part of this. That that was really what got social media fired up. And, you know, certainly some of this, the sections, I think that line that he has that uh, in there that says the NCAA is not above the law. I think that found its way into just about every news story or, or analysis I, I've seen. What, what is, when you when you look at the, the overall opinion and you look at what Justice Kavanaugh wrote, what is the difference between those two and, and how can it maybe impact? this case going forward? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So this case was largely around antitrust law. So the case before the court was really asking, is the NCAA violating antitrust law in the ways in which their eligibility rules around restricting compensation of college athletes is sort of somehow in violation of, of antitrust law? Um, and the NCAA really relies on the principle of amateurism as a way to differentiate college sports from professional sports. So um, Alston and the rest of the um, uh, of those student athletes were saying, hey, you know, we deserve some um, additional compensation um, and amateurism is in violation of antitrust law. Um, and the NCAA was saying, you know, wait a minute, we need to have amateurism. We need it as a way to distinguish what's professional and what's college. Um, and what we're really seeing now from this ruling is the ways in which amateurism as a principle really warrants much more um, analysis by the court and uh, or much more analysis. And if it was to come to the courts, it would be under um, antitrust law. So, 
when Kavanaugh, when Justice Kavanaugh suggests that the NCAA is not above the law, he's really suggesting that we need to, um, if this case was to come through the court system again, it would come back under antitrust law and they would take a deep dive or what they call a rule of reason analysis to really unpack amateurism and if the ways in which athletes are prohibited from receiving compensation for their labor on the field, if that violates antitrust law. And, you know, going back to when we were kind of first looking at this case and, and doing some deep dives here on, on the podcast, one of the things that struck me really was what is the worst case scenario for the NCA? Obviously, it could have been a very broad ruling, really attacking amateurism. This is a little bit more maybe narrow focus, but at the same time, it does seem like it opens the NCA up to a host of more lawsuits down the pipe, does it not? Yeah, and that was a lot of the sort of the analysis pre-ruling. You know, folks are really reluctant to to say what the NCAA might do, but even in the the proceedings um, of, of the discussion in front of the, the Supreme Court, there was a lot of discussion about if the if the Supreme Court ruled in favor of college athletes in this case, then it would expose the NCAA to many more lawsuits. And so that was one of the concerns of the NCAA. And clearly um, in the ruling today, the, uh, the Supreme Court has laid out that roadmap by which those future lawsuits could be um, brought forward. And it seems like at, at some point, one of the things that might get challenged as part of that was the the limit on fifty nine hundred dollars. Uh, that, that's part of the the lower court's ruling, and it seems like that seems ripe for uh, another lawsuit involved in the NCA. Is, does it not? It does, and I would agree that um, the fifty nine hundred dollars seems kind of arbitrary. But as I understand it, the Ninth Circuit looked at data that illustrated what a typical athletic award might account or uh, add up to. So when you think about college athletes that attend um, um, world ch uh, national championships, so we just had the uh, women's college softball championship in, you know, a few weeks ago. And so when those athletes travel to that tournament and they compete at that national level, they often receive some benefits or some awards um, that add up to about $5,900. And so that's where that amount of money came from. Think about the, the, the football players that go to a bowl game and they get sort of a gift bag or something. So that's where that amount came from. And so, yes, a lawsuit could come forward that picks up on that amount for educational benefits. So just thinking about that postgraduate scholarship as an educational benefits, for those that have been to graduate school, we know that $5,900 is just not gonna go that far. So in terms of a lawsuit, certainly that could be a place, although the courts are pretty specific around not getting into the weeds around some of those intricacies. They rule on, on sort of the legality of what the, the policies and the rules are, but not the intricacies of those. So certainly um, a case could come through the courts around those educational benefits and that amount of money. But I, I think really where we're going to see that those next challenges is going to be to this principle of amateurism that really restricts the ways in which college athletes can receive pay directly for the activity that they do as a college athlete at their institution, which is different than what we're seeing in the third party opportunities to make money under NIL. You know, it, it's interesting, even if you paid the the max $5,900, I mean, you're still talking about half a million dollars for, say, a Power 5 program, not not nothing to, to sweat about, but also something that is completely, uh, you know, certainly able to be picked up by your average everyday athletic department, especially at the Power 5 level. 
in, in practice, what kind of happens from here going forward, especially for these athletes? Are, are we going to see schools start to say, if you get a 3.0 GPA, here's your $5,900 at the end of the semester? Or is it going to be a little bit more complicated than that? Um, so the court did allow for um, institutions, the NCAA and uh, well, so let's just take a step back. The NCA is the governing body that we have member institutions and member conferences. So member institutions and member conferences can work within the NCA governance structure to try to set a universal rule for say all division one or all division two around some of these athlete compensation, uh, athlete compensation over educational benefits. Um, the court did also allow for individual institutions or conferences to set rules within uh, their ruling within this overall within this overall guideline. However, when you start to think about individual institutions trying to put together these different packages, part of what this educational benefit allows for is sort of greater competence greater competition in the marketplace. So you can have sort of greater competition among athletes for different kinds of benefits. What this also does is, is create real dilemmas for athletic programs, particularly those FCS or those schools that don't have football, um, that just play basketball at the division one level, they just don't have the financial resources to then in turn quickly shift the way their budget is structured to then start um, offering more of these educational benefits. So for the FBS schools, you know, those, those big schools in the SEC or the Pac-12 or the Big Ten, those schools are a little bit more nimble. They can probably manage that 5,900. I would not want to be an athletic director today trying to raise those funds. It's real money. They really got to raise it. But they have more tools at their disposal for raising those funds. What we're really going to see challenges is for those FCS programs and those non-football programs to try to keep up, as we have seen in all other kinds of athletic expenses, whether it be coaches' salaries, facilities. This is just one more educational benefit or athletic-related benefit that's going to separate the haves from the have-nots. You know, I, I was looking up a couple of coaches contracts, uh, not only last week, but, but this week and, and several coaches, you know, they have GPA bonuses and whatnot. Do you sense that maybe there, there will be a shift? This maybe might be the dividing line between athletic directors going out there and saying, no, no head coach XYZ, whoever they're, they're recruiting, we're, we're not going to pay you say a GPA bonus based on how your, your, your team did academically, because we're going to have to give that money to some of the students. Yeah, I think anyone that's sort of thinking about how we want to offer additional compensation to college athletes might look at this educational benefit and go, eh, this might not be the way we want to go about doing it. Because fundamentally, we have a system where we expect one group of students, typically football and basketball um, programs, to fund the department uh, expenses and all the rest of the opportunities for the other students. Now there are schools, um, are, again, our smaller Division One programs where they rely more heavily on, on student student fees, and so now you're relying on students on campus to help support the entire athletic program. So if we're really going to fix this system about the ways in which athletes get compensation, as a faculty member, I'm really not excited about academic cash awards, because that just puts more pressure on everyone. So you talked about contracts with coaching salaries. I mean, certainly we could see adjustments to coaching salary contracts, but just as a faculty member, I'm just not excited about cash awards for, for, for GPA or, or academic achievement. 
I would like to see other ways in which we think about how do we solve this dilemma of, of not getting, of, of not allowing college athletes access to the money that they have generated for the institution. And, and part of this case too, maybe kind of dovetailing a little bit on, on your point there, uh, was also in potential paid internships. How, how does that kind of fit into what, what the ruling actually said? And do you see, I mean, you, you work at, at Washington, do you see potentially, you know, the, the university and saying, hey, you can sign up for a, a paid internship with Amazon. And <laughs> will there be that level of competition among schools to, to get the best postgrad internships and yeah, that, that's a great question. And so, again, the, the way the court ruled, they are allowing for institutional uh, internships. So we're talking about above board internships, like you mentioned, the internship with Amazon that is an institution offered internship. Um, the uh, the ruling allows for policing of sort of below board internships. So, you know, the sort of the old days of the booster giving money um, to the athlete who was, you know, doing one kind of labor, you know, maybe at the car dealership, but getting, you know, getting a car. So those kinds of sort of luxury items are not allowed. Um, The ruling allows for policing of what you might think about as sort of a below board kind of internship. But the, the, the ways that this ruling offers um, more educational benefits to college to college athletes does allow for University of Washington to compete with internships in our tech sector, you know, right here in the Puget Sound or the Pacific Northwest. And then we might be competing in terms of recruiting with athletes that might be thinking about Stanford and Silicon Valley. So certainly these educational benefits where we've got internships that are based on the institution's arrangement for the internship and have an educational component to them, those internships could be highly you know, sought after. And that could be another uh, recruiting piece, if you will. And I mean, that does kind of get back to the educational you know, mission of, of the university. You know, we're, we're tied with these companies. They're not only in maybe our local uh, standpoint, we have alums, we have these connections. It seems like it just makes a lot more sense, you know, for not only these athletic directors to kind of tap into that, but do, do you sense that maybe some of the conferences could put a, a few handcuffs on in terms of what schools might be allowed to do, maybe not only in the, in the short term as they kind of all figure this out, but, but long term as well? Yeah, so the court does allow for conferences to set its own rules, and we've seen that with other um, other uh, both rulings, but also NCA policy. Conferences do have some latitude to create rules around um, these educational benefits. They just can't be, um, you know, sort of more restrictive beyond what's allowed by the court's ruling. So they they can't take any of these educational benefits sort of off the table, if you will. They don't necessarily have to offer them. They just can't, um, they can't uh, disallow those. Now you're you're at the the Center for for Athletics Leadership. So I I, I would be remiss to kind of point out that Really, of, of all the folks kind of under fire from this 9-0 ruling, Mark Emmert is at the top of the list. And his leadership has really been been questioned quite a bit, not only these last couple of weeks, but uh, dating back uh, really since this case began. Uh, I'm curious, do you think this might be enough for the the true you know leaders in college athletics, maybe not even up to the presidential level, to kind of start to re, rethink uh, about what they want in a leader at the NCAA and, and maybe – ultimately produce some change in terms of who's who's the face of the organization in Indianapolis. 
Yeah, that's a great question. And so going back and sort of taking this big step back and thinking about, okay, well, what is the NCA? It's this blue disc, you know, we, we see it on all the branding and the logos. And certainly Mark Emmert is the face of that organization. It's It's got its own building. It's in Indianapolis. It's got a staff and there's people that, you know, work at the NCAA, right? So the NCAA as a nonprofit um, entity um, is an organization with a staff, but it is a governance organization. And it is made up of approximately a thousand colleges and universities in the US. And so at these institutions, whether they're big or small, public or private, each one of those institutions that's a member institution has a say in the ways in which we set policy for our, our association. So the question is, you know, sort of is, is Mark Emmert the right person to keep leading that, that organization? Really, it's going to come from the membership and it's going to come from their board of governors. And so the, the, this ruling isn't really any similar or isn't really any different than any of the other things that have been happening recently. We've had the uh, hearing last week by the Senate Com Senate. Commerce Committee. We've got NIL coming out and depending on how you organize it, you know, anywhere from five to nine states on July 1st. And so this is sort of just one piece in a huge wave of change around college sports. And so the question is, isn't so much, is Mark Emmer ready and willing to change, but are colleges and universities ready and willing to change the ways in which we think about how we treat college athletes and how we fund this system. So Mark Emmert may or may not have a job tomorrow. I don't have any particular insight into that. But whether Mark Emmert is president or who else might be president, it's really going to be incumbent on these colleges and universities to think about our athletic programs. And that comes down to our college presidents, our athletic directors, our conference commissioners, and the ways in which the SCOTUS case has really laid out that roadmap for how to unpack amateurism and maybe even do away with amateurism. And I think that's what everyone really needs to get prepared for, because today's ruling really lays out how this could go next. So you mentioned doing away with, with amateurism. It, it seems like, you know, obviously Congress has, has been involved, as you mentioned, uh, in, in possibly giving them an antitrust exemption. Where where can this road go down? Do, do we see it opening the door a little bit for potentially some collective bargaining uh, between uh, certain student organizations or athlete organizations and the NCA and the schools? So that's one of the two options that they lay out in the in the case today is, is so the first option you mentioned that federal legislation, Congress could step in, I think at last count, there were seven federal bills, maybe eight at this point. So Congress could step in and sort of help shore up some of these questions around athlete pay, because really what we're talking about amateurism is the difference between college and, and professional sports as defined by who gets paid. And in college sports, we don't allow for, for athletes to be paid directly. So Congress could step in and offer some uh, remediation around antitrust law and either affirm the NCAA's amateurism rules or offer ways for the uh, member institutions to offer pay. We could also see um, options around some sort of collecting, collective bargaining or the ways in which college athletes would be able to collectively negotiate either with member institutions or the NCAA. Both of those are really, really complicated, but the SCOTUS ruling today allows for both of those paths as a way to untangle the ways that we don't allow for college athletes to be paid. Which direction it goes is, is really going to be difficult to say at this point.
You know, it seems like for, for so long, you know, the the Board of Regents case, especially kind of was was that that true tenant that uh, all of college athletics was kind of kind of governed by. And, and certainly everybody referenced that quite a bit, even in, in this particular case. In the grand scheme of things, does kind of Alston maybe maybe take that place as kind of the, the central uh, governing case that uh, we, we will continually refer to uh, over the next couple of decades, like like Board of Regents has been? It could be when you look at the the history of the sort of the big cases, certainly um, Board of Regents in 1984, O'Bannon, although it did not make its way to the Supreme Court, um, O'Bannon in 2009 is another really big case. I think the NCAA versus Alston case will also be one of those sort of large, bright markers. Um, it'll certainly be the brightest marker for the long term if there are no other cases that make their way to the Supreme Court. But I think it's still going to remain a really bright marker in this constellation of other things that are happening. We've got um, all those NIL um, uh, allowances that those um, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, they're all allowing for on July 1st. But then you can also kind of think back to the ways that over the last year, college athletes have been um, really front and center around athlete activism. We've also seen the NCAA move swiftly. They, they can move swiftly when they, uh, at the beginning of COVID, how they thought about um, offering extra eligibility when seasons were canceled and then sort of the swiftness of canceling sports and then adding them back. So, it, you know, we're in this moment in time. It's going to be a little hard to know which is going to be, you know, sort of the thing that we really look back on. From a legal standpoint, certainly Alston is, is going to be up at the top with O'Bannon and um, Regents. When we look back at this time, though, only time is going to tell, um, you know, where does this fit then in all of the things that have been happening over COVID, all the things that have been happening over uh, the racial reckoning around George Floyd, all the things that have been happening around NIL. It's a little bit too soon to tell where this is going to fit until we get a little bit more distance from it. Yeah, I mean, it is truly uh, hard to kind of fathom how, how much change is, is happening in, in such a short amount of period. But, but you've mentioned NIL. Uh, how does this kind of impact? We'll, we'll see the D1 Council meet uh, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. They'll mm-hmm. meet again next Monday. Some expectation of possibly having something done. Uh, there, there are a few scenarios floating out there in terms of what they might actually uh, be able to pass uh, at those meetings. But h- how does the Alston case impact what the NCA can do with regards to those NIL laws? So the NIL is third-party compensation, and the NCA versus Alston case is the ways in which colleges and universities offer compensation. So certainly they're related. Um, how the board c- connects those and how the board sees those as distinct, we will, we will find out in a few days. When we look at the ways that athletes are compensated, they can be compensated through scholarships. They can be compensated up to the cost of attendance. Um, at least in five states, as of July 1st, they'll be able to receive third-party compensation. This SCOTUS ruling says that they can receive additional educational benefits. But what's going to be really interesting is how does the board wrestle with not only those third-party um, modes of compensation, but how does the board um, either respond just to that or try to get a little bit in front of or um, alongside what uh, the ruling today mentioned around amateurism. How do you foresee you know, potential congressional involvement on, on the issues like that? And, and how, how much of a time frame do you think we'll kind of get on that front? 
Yeah, well, I wish that I could give you a really definitive answer in the ways in which Congress is going to move. Certainly, there has been a lot of interest. There's, um, I think it's seven or eight bills that have been introduced. So there's a lot of interest from a lot of uh, various um, uh, senators and and representatives. It's it's really anybody's guess who's going to, you know, sort of get out in front of this. There's been several senators and several representatives that have have been really vocal and really public. Um, It's anybody's guess who's going to get in front and um, lead any further legislation. It's also anybody's guess how the NCAA uh, might make steps either in the short term or the long term that really mitigate the need of uh, Congress to get involved. But if you think about Congress getting involved, they've really looked at a lot of things. They've looked at athlete health. They've looked at NIL. They've looked at pay for play. And so when you think about athlete health, athlete wellness, the, the protection of student athletes, when you think about the pay for student athletes and the various levers and the ways in which we can pay athletes, that's a lot for Congress to, to try to get its hands around. So I think if when we look at Congress, we're probably going to see something that's a little bit more distinct and specific along um, one of those lines, not all of those lines. Um, It will be interesting to see how quickly cases come to the courts and then begin to move through the courts around these issues of compensation. And so again, it's really hard to know how these various actors and these various levers are going to move and at what pace and how they'll work together in tandem and and how they'll be really at, at sort of at odds with one another. Well, it's certainly a difficult time to to be a leader in college athletics. That's that's something you, you study, you teach, you you discuss. If, if Jim Cohen, your your AD at Washington, there, or or somebody else, uh, rings up the phone and, and asks, you know, how can I deal with this? How can I provide leadership at my school, among my athletes, among my department? If they call you up and, and ask for some advice, do, do you have any to kind of give them about navigating such a really treacherous time in college <laughs> athletics? It is a really treacherous time to be a leader of, of pretty much any organization. I think there's some. I think there's some advice that they, they probably already know. Number one, listen to your athletes. Our athletes have have been speaking up in small ways and big ways, and until this point, higher education's not been real great at listening to students. And I would say our athletic programs haven't really done a great job of listening to our athletes. But if anyone who saw the hearing last week, the the Senate hearing. Um, Uh, where we had four outstanding women athletes that really spoke about their story and uh, sort of the day in and day out life of a college athlete. I mean, that was just a masterclass on what's it like to really try to be a high level athlete and, and really try to get your degree and really do well um, as a, as a college student. So I think the number one thing is we need to really listen to our athletes, but we need to listen in a deep and meaningful way. So that would be the first thing. And I would say any athletic director is probably already telling you that they are listening to their athletes and I believe that they are but I think we have to listen in fundamentally different ways and it's not just our athletic programs but you know it's really all of higher education needs to listen carefully to our students and to our athletes Um, and then the second thing I would say is really thinking about the ways that we've tried to uh, to work through policy in the past hasn't worked well and so there was this this idea of presidential control if we could just get presidents you know together and And what we saw was it was just too treacherous for one president or one institution to sort of pop up. So I do think we need some collective will over the interests of college athletes and some collective will 
over this professionalized experience that our college athletes um, are seeking and want, but also thinking about collectively, how do we mitigate some of the harms that have really been inflicted upon our college athletes in this system? And that's not something that's going to happen just if one you know leader or one conference pops up. That's really going to be some collective action um, at the leadership level. Well, that's a, a fantastic note to, to get us out of here on. If, if folks that are, that are listening along want to follow your work or, or maybe learn more about uh, what's, what's coming out of this case, how, how can they do it? How, how can they, they follow along from, from what you've been doing up there in Washington? So I'm at the Center for Leadership in Athletics. So you can find us at University of Washington there. Um, I'm also on Twitter at JL Hoffman. So you can find me at the center or you can find me on Twitter and I'm happy to engage with folks around this conversation. It's fascinating. It's an important and it's important. Absolutely. And we will definitely put those both those uh, links in the show notes so everybody can can follow along. Thank you so much for your time today, because uh, it is a, a monumental day, I think, in college athletics in terms of this ruling and kind of what it means going forward. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Many thanks, Dr. Hoffman. That, that is some terrific insight into the Alston case and really everything that has been going on in college athletics. Again, follow along on social media. Be sure to check out the show notes. Uh, we'll have a link for not only more information on this topic, but uh, there's also going to be a link in there to a very interesting conference Dr. Hoffman did uh, on the subject with uh, a number of helpful, really explainer videos if you want to kind of dive in uh, a little bit deeper in terms of what this means. Now, we're not done yet on the Alston ruling because, as I, as I mentioned on the top of the show, we're, we're half the number of hosts this week, but we're going to double the number of episodes. So be sure to check out the, the next show that should come out at our normal time on Wednesday morning. It's going to feature uh, veteran sports lawyer Darren Heitner to cover plenty of these Alston-related issues, as well as do a deep dive into name, image, and likeness, which I, I keep staring at the calendar for because it is truly right around the corner next week come July 1st, not only in the state of Florida, but across the country as well, and, and potentially across the the NCA as we see what the Division One Council is, is going to do on this subject this week. So be sure to refresh your feed for that. And, and again, if you want more detail on topics like this relevant to college athletics, be sure to sign up for the Extra Points newsletter. Use that promo code podcast for 20% off because there's no better time than right now to really see for yourself exactly what is taking place off the field and winds up having an impact between the lines. It has been a big week between the Salston News. We've got NIL around the corner, uh, plus CFP expansion is going to get rubber stamped soon by the, the college presidents down in Dallas. It's all happening now. Truly a pivotal moment in the history of college athletics for, for just about every university out there. So if you're looking to engage a little bit further, or you just want to keep some, some random musings at uh, what's going on with uh, Euro 2020 across the pond, be sure to follow me as well on social media at Brian D. Fisher on Twitter. B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R, Brian D. Fisher on Twitter, uh, all the latest news and notes and maybe a little soccer music here or there as well. But I uh, hope you've enjoyed this solo episode so far. we got another one in the hopper. As I mentioned, Matt will be back next week. Until then, thank you for listening and we will catch you next time.